0: On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PWC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.
1: We obviously will be talking a lot about the Middle East in the next 10 to 15 minutes. It does feature across the front of every single newspaper coverage, not necessarily adding much to what we didn't know. It's about a week since the attacks happened in Israel and a lot of people, hundreds of people, in fact, were killed in those initial wave of attacks. So we are expecting an Israeli ground invasion to occur. The scale and scope of it is unknown, but if the objective is to wipe out Hamas entirely, that tells you a little bit or sort of clues you into the scale of what's going to happen. It may be unprecedented even in the history of wars and conflict in the region, of which there have been many, of course, virtually Every decade, so and I'm now going to go and try and get a live update on where we are with Hannah McCarthy, who's a freelance journalist based in the middle east she's she's actually in Tel Aviv, I believe now. Hannah, good morning to you. my time. How are you?
2: morning I'm good yeah. I'm just um out of the um basement in the restaurant I was in. We just had an air raid shell or a air raid warning there.
1: Okay, well, I'll come to you in one second. I also have on my panel Declan Powers, a defense and security expert, and Hadil Qaziz, who is from Oxfam and a regional gender advisor based in Ramallah. So I'll come to my two other guests in a second. So we are hearing on this part of the world, Hannah, that there is a ground invasion likely to happen. Do you have any idea when it might happen? Do you have any idea what size and scope it might be? Do you have anything that you might be able to enlighten us on, on what's going to happen in the next 48 hours? We kind of know it's going to happen, but the exact scale of it is still very much unknown.
2: Well, well, we've already seen um, that there have been very small kind of operations that have already taken place within Gaza. So, I mean, technically, um, we can kind of say it's already begun from the point of view of having you know Israeli boots within the Gaza Strip. Like how much bigger that's going to get, um, we don't yet know. Uh, there have been some protests uh, in Tel Aviv from families of uh, Israeli hostages in the Gaza Strip. Who've said they want um, hostages being returned to be the priority rather than um, the land invasion. So there is some debate there. Again, as people have seen, um, Netanyahu has formed a kind of wartime coalition uh, government with some of the opposition parties that had refused to go into power. Not all of them have gone into um, this government with him. So there remains some division and internal kind of discord there. So it remains to see you know, what, uh, how much support he will get from across the parties for this. You know, what he has said will be quite a large, overwhelming invasion.
1: Right. Can I just tease that out a bit more? So, so the hostage voice or, or the relatives and family of the hostages, is it possible that the, that the form of invasion, the actual logistics of it, may be influenced by what those people who are related to hostages are saying? I mean, does that mean that the Israelis have to make it more smart, as they would see it, and smaller scale and, and, and more discriminating? Or do, do you think that voice won't carry much weight ultimately? You know,
2: honestly, there's conflicting opinions on this. Some say the scale uh, of the death on the 7th of October means that, you know, revenge is the primary uh, concern um, and, you know, the hostages just, you know, the, the deaths on them last Saturday are so large that the hostages won't be a priority. But again, um, there is definitely criticism, um, you know, within Israel about the lack of priority for the hostages. And Netanyahu has not yet met with them, or they're sorry, with their families. And, um, you know, Biden has even, you know, had calls with them. So it's, he's definitely, there's a, there's a feeling that he's fearful of interactions with them on the grounds that, you know, his government didn't properly protect them. Uh, So there is a, and again, we're also seeing reports of, you know, that four out of five Israelis you know, are critical of Netanyahu and, you know, want him gone after uh, the war is over. Uh, So uh, there's definitely, um, uh, I I don't think there's any clear answers of how they're going to approach the hostage issue yet.
1: And do we have any idea on numbers in relation to hostages that are there? It's been kind of waxing and waning the numbers because obviously it's very hard to know exactly. But do you have any sense of how many people are, are, are in the custody or under the control of Hamas in the Gaza Strip?
2: The estimates range from 100 to 150, and then Hamas have also, you know, said um, that you know they said kind of 14 had died in the aerial strikes on Gaza since last Saturday. But obviously, we can't confirm that. At the same time, like last Friday, I was in a military base um, outside of Tel Aviv uh, where they're collecting bodies and identifying them. So it's it's a very complicated process. They haven't collected and identified everyone. So there's still question marks over who is a hostage and who sadly has been killed. Um, and again, you know, the families have been quite critical about the lack of contact from Netanyahu's government over both the hostage issue and the fact that some families still don't know are their family are the family members in okay. the Gaza strip or are they been killed
1: I'll come to our other guests in one second but one final question Hannah we've obviously got a lot of powerful influential outside voices speaking on this um US uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken Saudi Crown Prince Prince Mohammed bin Salman they're all sort of cautioning saying de-escalate etc do you think those voices are going to carry any weight in Israel or or do you think look this is this is an Israeli play it's just going to happen on Israeli context alone or do you think the outside voices might moderate the response?
2: You know, I, I think there is huge hurt within Israeli society after the attacks last Saturday. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's it's a, a massive attack uh, on them. And I think the fact that it, you know, hit at, you know, liberal, you know, Israelis, many who are kind of, you know, on the left and progressive voices and, you know, some were peace activists, that's shaken a lot of uh, more moderate Israelis. Uh, obviously, there are still, you know, small protests against the Gaza strikes here. Um, But there is definitely, you know, speaking to kind of soldiers at at the morgue, at the military base on Friday, there is definitely a sense that they want vengeance. They're angry uh, and they want Hamas to never be able to inflict something like this again.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, Just stay there with me for the moment, Hannah. I've also got Declan Power, who's a well-known defence and security expert, very familiar to our listeners. Declan, um, good morning to you. Good morning, Emmett. How are you? Now, you know this region well. You know, actually, the part played by the Irish troops in, in this region as well. If the Israeli defence forces, they set their objective as the pretty much the elimination of Hamas, you know, it's an important word. Do you think, A, that can be delivered at all? And B, if it can be delivered, what does it mean militarily? What are we talking about in terms of ground invasion? Just kind of maybe for our listeners' benefit, sketch out what that might look like, uh, terrifying, and though it may be.
0: Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, just to look at it from the perspective of the ground invasion, and you know, there's nothing simple about that. Even though it's a small strip of land, it's heavily populated. Hamas have had a long time to develop their defence in depth. They will have a significant network of tunnels to be able to draw on. The Israelis know this. This is why they're pounding the place. They're They're softening up the ground. They've engaged in intelligence gathering and reconnaissance. They've been lifting... Uh, selected individuals that will be helping shape that intelligence picture to give their ground forces the <clears throat> the best overall uh, tactical picture that they can have when they go into that space. When they go into that space, when the, the ground offensive as such begins, any resistance they meet will be... You know they will reply with overwhelming force, with coordinated and uh, ground air strikes, uh, ground to air strikes, with the you know, infantry forces coming into contact and then calling in airstrikes. They will be probably risk averse, so they will use might uh, rather than any kind of uh, subtle approach. Now, the overall point about this is, and to address your other question, will this defeat Hamas? It will defeat Hamas on the ground at that time, but militarily. Uh, you won't defeat Hamas in the long run. And this is the nub of the point here. The Israelis are understandably uh, filled with a mixture of uh, anger and desire for vengeance, and it's all focused on defeating Hamas. But Hamas have to be defeated politically, uh, morally, uh, because what will happen is you will just have another generation that will come along with the same ideas, the ideology of Hamas has to be addressed. Now, you can never entirely do away with pockets of extremists, but this is where the rest of the international community come in. We in the West are culpable of helping Hamas having got to where they are. Uh, We could have done things that could have prevented their rise. Ordinary Palestinians in Gaza got pushed into their arms, so to speak, when they got elected. And we, we we need to remember that. It's a bit like the Nazis. We sometimes forget that these people get elected. And why did they get elected? Because people sometimes see the, themselves as having no alternative. Sure, and the EU... We well, can I just? It was, was instrumental. In sure, that. yeah. Well, so unfortunately, to, and, and yeah, I understand.
1: There's a wider context, which unfortunately, time-wise, we just don't have to, the the luxury to go into. But what I'd like to get you to um, talk to me a little bit about is we're getting headlines coming in here that Israel has struck at Lebanon after hours after an attack on a border village. What I want to ask you there is if the military response by Israel is, as you say, overwhelming into the Gaza Strip, does that bring other parties like Hezbollah into play? Or are they just going to stay on the sidelines? So in other words, is there a risk in the scale of the Israeli response that if it is seen, perceived, etc., depicted to be overwhelming, as you call it, does that trigger other possible regional actors to come into play? Well, it's a
0: distinct possibility because uh, I would definitely believe that, that's a desire. That's a strategic objective not for Hamas. And I don't believe, even talking about Hamas, I don't think is entirely correct, as you've alluded to earlier. Hamas and Hezbollah have the same thing in common. Iran is their paymaster and their strategic advisor and, and pulls their strings an awful lot. And this, this, the level of coordination of what's going on here indicates, I would say, the involvement of a state actor or state actors. What's their overall objective? Chaos in the Middle East, moral confusion in the West we're already seeing that play out
1: okay stay with unlike, me there because we have sorry, uh, yeah. we've got three <coughs> three people in the conversation I need to get them all in so hadil kwaziz is actually based in ramallah in the west bank and uh, joining me now hadil are you there
3: yes yes thank Great. you thank you we'll appreciate happen. you
1: coming on the program you're very welcome along what's the mood like there you're obviously not directly involved in the conflict but you are in other ways involved so so what are people saying in the west bank about all of this and, and what are their fears from here on in
3: Well, uh, actually, it's not uh, only that I'm based in the West Bank, but all my family and my in-laws and everyone I have in this world live in the Gaza Strip. They have been under fire for eight days now. Uh, some of them had to evacuate four or five times to safer places, but there's no safe space in in the Gaza Strip. Basically, they, they evacuated to the south of the Gaza Strip, as they were told by the Israelis. But last night, in two, two houses, next to two of my sisters were bombarded and whole families were killed. Actually, we have news that 50 families were totally wiped out of the civilian records. Basically, there is mass killing, Until now, 2,200 people are accounted for. Maybe there are more because there are some uh, deserted areas that nobody can reach. Ambulances can reach. Five ambulances were totally destroyed. So the situation is devastating. And the stories I hear from my family are terrifying.
1: And when did Uh, you, um, Hadil, just get an idea, when did you last have contact with them?
3: This morning, I tried to account to all of them. Uh, I could reach some of them and others I couldn't because there's no electricity already for three days now uh, so uh, in many cases uh, people ran out of uh, generators and uh, solar energy uh, which th- they used to charge their mobiles others are calling us like friends and the relatives asking us to charge their mobiles or try to give them any type of, uh, uh, of connectivity to the world uh, Oxfam where I work we have a, we had a, a big rather big operation in the Gaza Strip with 33 staff and many many uh, local organizations organizations. None of them are safe. And we hear terrifying stories from our colleagues as well, not only my family. And Adil, including-
1: um, you, you were saying that people tried to get out after this Israeli warning. Can you just talk me through what happened when they heard this warning? What attempts were made? Well, like, in other words, what, what goes on on the ground when people say oh, we're trying to get out? Are they getting down towards the Egyptian border even that far? or what, what, What's happening?
3: Yeah, the Egyptian borders are closed, so nobody can go out of the Egyptian borders because they, they, they are closed with summons at the moment. Uh, so at uh, 2 p.m. Uh, on Friday, at 2 a.m. A- 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 early, Saturday morning, actually, people uh, received phone calls, leaflets were thrown from air on, on the people in the Gaza Strip that you have to flee to uh, behind uh, G- Wadi Gaza. Wadi Gaza is uh, uh, like uh, uh, a valley that cuts the... South from the north, and people were instructed to move to the south. Uh, my family uh, moved in two waves, so there were some early adapters who left already in the morning, and it was rather okay. But my last sister, when she was trying to cross, uh, that's when already Israelis started bombing people who were internally displaced, and she witnessed, actually, a, a, a truck wh- which was bombed with civilians in it, and at least 35 people were killed. Um, she right barely escaped for her life, and her she has four children, actually, and her husband. Um, okay, yeah, Nadeel,
1: I, I mean, look, all, all I can say from my perspective is I, I wish you the best and your family. It, it's dreadful stuff uh, to hear those stories. Um, I, I don't know how so many people are expected to evacuate so quickly and in that manner. So, you know, my heart goes out to you from that point of view. Let me go back to our initial guest, Hannah, to try and get more sense of this. Hannah, you heard there um, Nadil, talking a little bit about the border with Egypt, you know, the, the crossing there at Rafa, that's is is the reason the Egyptians have that remaining closed. Is that in talks and negotiations with the Israelis, or they just don't want the flood of refugees? Or what's the political calculus of the Egyptians of closing that border crossing at least for now?
2: I mean, Israel and Egypt have an incredibly close security partnership in relation to the Rafa crossing. So basically, a lot of that policy would be set jointly. I know I spoke to, and I know from an Irish perspective, there are Irish citizens in there who cannot cross across that um, crossing into Egypt and into safety. Um, and I know there's real concerns about when they'll be able to get out. And I've just been informed today that not only uh, have the Irish citizens, are they not currently being allowed out, but if there is a window in which they're allowed to pass, uh, they've been told that they cannot bring uh, their dependents who don't have Irish citizenship. So we're talking about, you know, mothers of Irish children or, you know, wives of Irish citizens. Um, So we don't fully know exactly where the policy
1: is from. Do you envisage, as as the kind of backs up there and international focus on this whole thing increases, do you think the Egyptians will relent on their current policy there?
2: So I think there's a couple of different issues to consider. So first, there's real concerns that once Palestinians, you know, cross into Egypt, they will remain there, you know, in camp. you know, within Egyptian territory. Egypt does not want that. And Palestinians themselves have concerns about, you know, being you know, displaced once again. You know, most of Gaza are already refugees. Uh, so there are concerns there that, you know, the land invasion could actually be a precursor to take over part of the Gaza Strip uh, by Israel. So there's a lot of concerns there. Egypt also has a struggling economy, though. So it may be that, you know, in return for, you know, um, for aid or loans that they will, you know, take on, um, these Palestinian refugees, but there's real concerns about the long-term diplomatic impact of that, uh, and certainly, um, you know, Israel. Um, again, according to someone I spoke with, it was not guaranteeing safe passage through Rafah crossing, which was bombed twice uh, last week um, for international evacuees, as far as um, um, I know from this source. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of diplomatic plays happening around this crossing. Uh, and again, it's not really being taken from an international humanitarian point of view. You know, There are rules around how civilians should be treated, and that sure. doesn't seem to be a concern here.
1: OK, listen, thanks. That's a, a very, very interesting perspective. You, you've given us a real sense of it on the ground. Hannah McCarthy, who is a freelance journalist, uh, she's talking to us from Tel Aviv, but reports more generally throughout the Middle East. Declan Parry, you heard earlier on, he's a security expert. And Hadil Quaziz, who we wish the best, who has family in the Gaza Strip, she works with Oxfam. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11.
0: Brought to you by PWC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.